Ready to boost sales and grow your business without the BS? Welcome to the Business Growth Show. I'm Sam Dunning, a digital marketing, sales, and business growth evangelist. Tune in and subscribe today as I'll be interviewing business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs from around the globe. We'll be sharing actionable tips across marketing, sales, and growth without the BS to help you skyrocket your business. And welcome back to a fresh I'm your host, Sam Dunning, co-owner over at webboostuk.com. And today I'm joined by Todd Capone. Todd is author of the best-selling book, The Transparency Sale. He's also a speaker and workshop leader over as principal of Sales Melon LLC. Todd, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. No worries, dude. So looking forward to jumping in today. We're going to be talking all about the power transparency when it comes to startup and business. So first and foremost, Todd, let's chuck you straight in at the deep end as we always do. What does transparency really mean when it comes to business? It's well, it's such a good question because the word transparency is so overused and some people confuse it with authenticity or whatever. But here's, uh, let me start with a little story about it. Um, sure. Because in my last role, I was the chief revenue officer of a tech company here in Chicago. Okay. called uh, Power Reviews. And you can probably guess from the name Power Reviews. They were in the review space, right? So yep. collect and display ratings and reviews for retailers and brands. So buy a pair of Crocs or Vineyard Vines or whatever. When you look at the product, scroll down and there's the reviews under it. There's a decent chance that it was Power Reviews that's the engine behind that. But okay, what ended up happening is this was like 2016, 2017. We did a research study along with a local university, Northwestern University here in Chicago, that was just looking at, all right, when a website is acting as a salesperson, what do people do, right? So just a normal study, but there was three data points that came out of it. Two of them changed my life, which okay. only could happen to a nerd like me, who's like a behavioral <laughs> science nerd. But um, the, the three data points, the first one that didn't, and when I say changed my life, like I quit my job and I wrote a book. Um, so the first data point, again, no surprise here, was that we all read reviews today, right? Yeah. So 90, it was 96% of us read reviews when we're buying something we haven't bought before. That's right. a medium to high consideration, right? And like the only surprise there was who are these 4% that don't? But sure. the, the two data points that changed my life, number one, was that 85% of us go to the negative reviews first. So we okay. skip the fives and go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones. I don't know if, if that's something you do where you're, you're yeah, looking I think, the, you skip past the fives. Do you think that's just because we're always skeptical? Like, for example, when I'm looking at a new product for the uh, for Amazon, like before we hit record, Todd, we were talking about the, the lights that I use and I shared with you that they're yeah. actually just cheap, like remote control lights that are like eight, yeah. 10 bucks. Um, but yeah, I know, for example, if I'm looking at a listing, I'll kind of think if there's a bunch of five stars, are these necessarily real? I want to get some more feedback. I'll skip to the one, two, three stars, see what they've got a bitch about, and then I'll make an informed decision. So I get where you're going. Yeah, exactly. So the, the second data point along the same lines, and then I will get to the behavioral science about why, is when a product on a five-star review or a five-star scale has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5, that is optimal for purchase conversion, meaning okay. that products that have negative reviews right under them help those products sell better than products that have nothing but five-star reviews. And so to your point, 
you know, that that's what a website's acting as a salesperson. I was thinking, all right, that's interesting. Thinking through exactly the, the thought process you had is just like, hey, I'm skeptical when all I hear is perfect five star. Why does that happen? And does it apply to human to human or B2B selling? And so I started digging into the behavioral science research and found out the answer is absolutely yes. And yet, as a sales leader, I had a big sales team, about 60 people, that I've been basically teaching to sell as though we are a perfect five-star. And I thought, hey, listen, if 85% of us want to go to the negative first and imperfect sells better than perfect, what would happen if we went into sales engagements and basically played our cards face up? Not to say, hey, listen, everybody, this is why we suck. Like, no, take it easy. It's that four, two to four, five. Like, hey, listen, in your environment, here's a couple of things that maybe we don't have. Maybe a competitor does better than us. Um, you know, maybe there's a risk area here. And if you're going to be cool with that, here's what you're going to love. And and that we we started doing that. Uh, we had a couple of I, uh, opportunities to basically yeah. lead with, hey, a competitor just released something that we don't have. And if that's going to be a big deal for you, let's vet that now before we get too deep into this. And like magic happened. Um, sales cycle sped up so dramatically that like the, the buyer was actually showing us his budget. That we found that transparency begets transparency. That when wow. you're truly transparent, and when I say transparent, again, different than authentic to answer your question. Authentic is being your true you. And well, what if you're a jerk? Um, but uh, but you know, transparent is about basically with your customers, with everybody. Any conversation that you would have in an internal room, you know, a conference room talking about, oh, we're struggling here or this is a risk, we should be having with our customers. And we do trust builds. We help that client or prospect predict, yep. which again, speeds the sales cycle because they have to do less homework on their own. Yep. And your win rates go up considerably because you're working the deals you should. And you, more importantly, you're losing the deals that you were going to lose anyway, just a lot faster. And so that that was when like this whole thing sparked. And I was like, listen, I think there's an opportunity here. I'll add one thing to this though. Sure. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to ramble on too much, but I'm a sales history nerd too. Um, so like this book, for example, this one's 1916. I, for anybody watching, like I wish you could smell it. It's uh, the art and science of selling. There's a whole chapter in this book in 1916 on honesty, right? So we've, we've always known that honesty sells better. We've always known it, right? And it feels better, but here's the difference. And here's why I felt I had to write this now is because now what's changed, the proliferation of reviews and feedback on everything we do by an experience. So 20 years ago, you could get away with the mistruths and kind of hiding what you suck at. Today, you can't. So you might as well figure out how to do it the right way. Yeah. 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 Interesting points. There's a few bits and pieces I want to dive into. So I guess let's talk a little bit more about how this can actually be put into play and the psychology behind it. Yeah. So being upfront about your flaws, I'm sure some people are tuning in and thinking, some might be thinking, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Others might be thinking, well, I'm going to lose a bunch of prospects, potential leads, all these customers that we might be winning deals off are going to go down the drain. Why should I do that? Well, I guess first and foremost, what what what's really the psychology? I know you touched on it a bit when we talked about kind of Amazon reviews and things like that. Why do we need to be 
up front straight away. How is it helping us in the long run, Todd, by saying what's perhaps not a great fit about our company rather than just saying how great we are? Well, yeah. So it starts with this idea that we as human beings are prediction machines. Like literally every minute of every day, our brain is trying to predict what's going to happen. Right. And, you know, like there's a really interesting uh, research study that I read about, like when your body tells you it's thirsty, you grab your drink, you take a sip and immediately your body tells you it's not thirsty anymore. Even though that liquid doesn't reach your bloodstream for anywhere between four and 45 minutes. Right. And so like prediction, every purchase we're making, we're trying to predict right now. We know subconsciously that perfection isn't possible, right? Perfection isn't real. And so our brains are not able to trigger a purchase decision until we get a, a firm prediction that we have confidence in of the juice is going to be worth the squeeze, right? And so if all we hear about is how great the juice is and the nutritional value and how great it tastes, but we never learn the squeeze, our brain can't actually trigger a decision. We need to know that. Now, the other piece of that is that our brains, we also put up something that I've heard others call a limbic filter. So limbic is the kind of the center of your brain. Right. And it's where decisions get triggered. It's the emotional and feeling center. Mm. Now, that limbic system between your ears on the way to the limbic, we're basically resistant to influence, right? That whole five-star piece around we know perfection doesn't exist. Sure. We've got a little filter. So all the words coming in that are positive, great, how awesome we are, that I mentioned how great we are, are going through basically a limbic BS filter on the way to their brain. And we gotcha. have to disarm that. And that's part of the reason why 85% of us go to the negatives first, right? Is that's the disarming mechanism for us on our own when a website's acting as a salesperson to be able to now um, process the the five star the, the the positives in all of this, and yeah. so that's the psychological pieces of why that works so well. And then again, the four two to four five is the element that says, "Hey, listen, we know perfection doesn't exist. Imperfection sells better, but it doesn't mean that you suck either, right? If we get below that four two, you start to get some questionability around." you know, whether or not your solution is actually worthy. And again, all of this applies to human to human and B2B selling. Got it. Okay. So let's perhaps talk about some examples of where businesses can put this into play. Mm -hmm. Should it be primarily on initial sales conversations if we're perhaps looking to take on our first few clients or grow our customer base yeah. or are there other scenarios, Todd, that you could perhaps share how and when we can use these these or this technique rather to build our trust? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, there's a couple of things. So first okay. of all, um, you, when you think about some of the most successful brands in the world, yeah. the Ikeas, the Costco's, the Southwest, I mean, they're, you know, here in the US, the Southwest Airlines, they all suck to a certain level, right? Like if you've been to an Ikea, you know, uh, you get a map when you walk in, which is always a great sign that you got hell on earth ahead of you. Right? <laughs> yeah, tell me you, about it. Find what you're looking for. There's no salesperson around. You got to write down the code or take a picture with your phone of where it's located in the warehouse because you've got to go get it. Pull the 100-pound boxes onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, which seems like a massive oversight. Go out to the parking lot, jam it Tetris style into the back of your car, F-bomb your way through that. 
You then drive home with a souvenir injury thinking that you left all the fun back at the store, but then you open the box and there's 150 parts, no words on the work instructions other than the word like Svarta or whatever the, like the, you know, the, 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 the brand <laughs> name is. And then you F-bomb your way through that. And you're like, oh, that looks pretty good. You can go get the end tables with this bedroom set. It's like, it's crazy. But Ikea, the number one furniture retailer in the world for 13 straight years, right? And why? Because they branded this idea that, hey, listen, there's certain things that we're going to give up to be great at our core. You're going to do all that stuff. And we're going to be great at giving you modern Scandinavian design furniture you didn't pay much for. And there's meatballs upstairs if you want them too, which are pretty great. But the point being that every one of the organizations of everybody listening to this gives up something to be great at your core. And so it starts there, right? Okay. It's that embracing of, hey, we, we're not all things to all people. And when, when you embrace that, I think there's actually an opportunity to brand it uh, so that you bring in more, like a smaller total number of leads, but they're all pre-qualified. So you are ultimately um, efficient in all of your selling efforts. That's number one. But to your question, if you're early stage, you're just getting started. Like, what are some of these things that we can do? Because we don't even know yet. Well, you know two things. Number one, that you're early stage. And I'm hoping that one of the first words that comes out of your mouth when you're engaging with a new prospect is to make sure that's cool with them. Right. And what I mean by that is, you know, one of the early stage tech companies that I worked with here in Chicago, they, they got an inbound lead from a huge retailer, right. That found them on the, uh, like on a Google search, they were going to build the technology and they're like, Oh, you've already built it. Cool. And they wanted to hide this idea that it was basically three dudes in a garage. Right. And I was like, Hey, listen, before, like, do you want them to um, tell you they don't want to work with a startup now or after you burn four months of cash that you barely have? And they're like, well, obviously now would be better if that's going to be a problem. Well, then you better ask, right? And so it was, hey, listen, before we get too deep into this, we're three dudes at a garage. Like, we're passionate about this. We've got runway. The technology works. But if you're never going to be cool with working with early stage on such a strategic type of um, solution, let's vet that now. And what happened? They were like, ooh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's, why don't we partner on this, right? And all of a sudden, it changed the game. It built trust. And they were able to work together on this because the big retailer was able to understand the truth. Yep. Now, back to the sales history stuff. 1919, a guy named Arthur Dunn had a quote that I freaking love. And like, I, I use it all the time. And the quote is simply this. If the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. Right. And so that's where it starts. If you're early stage, you better be telling these companies you're working with where you are and, and don't try to hide the truth because that'll kill you later. Yep. And for every day that goes on, you're burning cash, aren't you? So that's number one. And then the second piece, if you're early stage, is to also be very upfront about what technology or what solution exists and what doesn't. What you're yep. working on, what your roadmap is about, what's realistic. Again, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. The more upfront you are about that, you're either building or eroding trust with every interaction. You better be building it right out of the gate. Yeah, love those points. Um yeah, so I mean, in terms of being upfront about your company and what you can and can't do, I know I've been probably when I was a sales rep at 
I've, I've mostly work in tech companies, Todd, typically kind of web and digital marketing companies are so similar to what you're talking about then. And I know, and especially in my younger years, whenever, and I've, I've kind of learned the hard way since, but I know in my younger years, when, whenever potential leads come in, whether they came inbound, outbound, whatever, um, I always wanted to please them, I guess. Yeah. So if they said, look, um, have you got this number of staff? Can you do this feature? Can you build this software? Can you partner with this? Can you integrate with this? I was always trying to be a yes man. Um, always like, yes, yes. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Or oh, I'll look into that for you. I'm going to try and sort that for you. I'll see if we can make that happen for you. Whereas, like you say, it's if if you try and if you struggle your way through and try and be everything to everyone, it eventually comes back to bite you in the ass. Whether that is killing all your team's time, yeah. taking all your budget, being a stress to yourself so you're constantly working on their account rather than your other customers as well um i've, I've certainly been there the hard way so getting back to your point being up front so going back to that tech company you helped with just three guys in the garage and just saying look we're this this is our setup um is that going to work for you or is it going to be a problem do you think that almost disarms the prospect they're just thinking well we're, we're quite blown away because this this is the first company that's been up front rather than just saying yes to everything um you think they're just taken back a bit well, yeah. I mean, I think we all struggle with differentiation, right? We try to differentiate on our solutions, our pricing, our go-to-market, our, our implementation, whatever. I just think that for companies that especially are in more highly competitive spaces, this is an incredible opportunity to differentiate in the way that you sell, right? Yeah. So you add a differentiator. But you know, to your previous point, even today, like you know, I've always been in tech, um, and you know, been in tech leadership and teaching my reps to basically do what you just talked about. Like we want to please. Right. And I found that even in my new business, so I wrote the book, I thought there was a 50, 50 chance it would suck because I'd never written a book before, but it like, it came out in 2018. It's sold more in 2021 than 2018. So it just keeps going up, which is incredible awesome. to me. But right now I speak and I do workshops and teach. I had a senior executive for a multi-billion dollar company, uh, reach out. Well, actually the lead came in lower level, but they wanted me to connect with a high level person. This executive started the conversation by telling me, he was like, here's what we need, Todd. We need X, Y, and Z, right? Like that's what we're looking for. Turns out I don't do any of those three. Right. And so I just, in, I stopped them after that. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, tell me more about that. We, we vetted a little bit. And I was like, listen, I don't do any of those things. Um, I probably could, but I don't even really enjoy doing those. Can I refer you to somebody who does, who's fantastic at it? Yeah. And the guy was like, well, yeah, that would be awesome. But wait, what do you do? And I was like, well, here's the approach that I take, right? You know, my approach is more workshop based programmatic with follow through instead of like the one-on-one -on -one roll up the sleeves consulting stuff. I don't really like sure. that. And uh, he was like, all right, let's dig into that. At the end of the conversation, we're going to do what I do. Right. And so I think that that's the opportunity there is when there's something you don't do again, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. Right. Be honest, but that offer to refer to other people. Now I am going to still pass along the name of the people that do that because I think it's still, it still was what they wanted and there's still an opportunity and a place for that there. And that's going to endear me to those people who are also like, you got to think long game on so much of this. They come around yeah. when you're honest. And then that spreading the wealth creates so many opportunities for you just along your reputation and just somebody that can be trustworthy and the right partner for many companies. 
Yeah, and it's one of those things, right, Todd, especially when you're a startup, you you're pro- you might be, unless you're funded, you might be scratching around for cash. You might be trying to get any project job inquiry that you can and win that deal. So I guess it puts you at a bit of a tight situation because something comes your way, whether that's a sales opportunity, and you might think, well, this deal could really benefit us. So you might be thinking, even though this is not our sweet spot of a service or product we can offer, I'm so tempted to go for it. But I guess it's having that long-term vision of thinking, well, this is just going to hamstring us. This is going to take up all our time or resources, or we don't actually know how to do it best. So we might not serve the customer well. And then thinking, well, look, I can refer you to to my network, to someone that I know. Um, here's where I could potentially help you. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, on that, when you're early stage, yeah, that's like, how do you sleep at night thinking, <laughs> hey, we got this great lead and I'm going to tell them we don't do that? Like, that's crazy, right? Well, here's a couple of things to think about. When you are early stage and you start getting inbound lead flow from companies in areas that don't quite fit what you do, have those conversations with companies because it might mean, hey, there's an opportunity that we're not thinking about and our perspective of what the market needs might not be right. So I'm not saying like just kill those right out of the gate, but I'm saying in those cases, like, hey, I would like to investigate this a little bit more with you because it's not quite what we do, but we've had a, a couple of other companies that are asking for exactly what you are and maybe there's an opportunity for us to shift our roadmap a little bit to be able to. So it doesn't mean walk away every time, right? It just means transparent. Embrace what you give up and just be an honest human being. It sells better. It will speed sales cycles. But most importantly, in early stage, every minute that you're spending an opportunity you know you're going to lose could be an opportunity for you to be prospecting for those opportunities that you're going to win, right? So like, it's not just the... The, the cost of yeah. moving slowly, but it's also yeah, the cost yeah. of missing out on better opportunities. Well, that's it. They do say a, a healthy pipeline is is almost the cure to everything when it comes to generating sales. And like you say, I've been guilty of in the past. I don't want to talk about my flaws too much because there's plenty of them. But um, I know, again, in my younger years, used to think when a, and a warm kind of lead came your way, you think it's the be all and end all. If I don't win this deal, I'm going to sacrifice everything to bring this in when you're wasting so much time and energy um yes if it comes in excellent but then you're not thinking about the future like other other deals i could get over the line other leads that i could bring into the pipeline to keep business a lot better so it's yeah getting that long-term vision so with that said todd are there any other um stages i guess of business or the sales cycle where transparency can be of use to us well everywhere um like you'd probably guess can let's uh talk for a minute about even negotiations because i know that sounds crazy but um, the most popular thing I teach is called transparent negotiating. I'm going to like for everybody listening, I'm going to kind of lay it out for you here. I don't know about you, but I always felt like it was weird that I needed a different personality to negotiate than I did to sell. Like, I don't know if you felt that in your career, but it was like, I, I'm building trust to the goal line. The customer says yes. And then I subconsciously come back to him with, all right, cool. I'm going to start lying to you now. I'm not going to tell you what a good deal is. I'm going to have to go to my boss for every question. Like, it's stupid. It, like that whole concept. And then, uh, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm actually going to use the uh, techniques I learned from a former FBI hostage negotiator to get us through the goal. Like, I love that book. What that book, book is Never like split one the of difference, the greatest books of all time. But I think, especially if you're in tech sales, that like, isn't that crazy that we're learning about release of hostages from a bank heist when we're talking about. So um, I, the, the approach that I took 
about 13 years ago, accidentally, when I got stuck in the middle of a huge, uh, you know, four and a half million dollar deal where it was me against a whole team of procurement people for a, a big oil and gas company down in Houston, yeah. where I just played my cards face up at the beginning of the conversation, partially because I was nervous and I was like, oh, crap. I was a VP of sales and I was freaking out. Um, but here's here's how it works is transparency at the negotiation stage is, hey, listen, there's four things that matter to us as an organization. And they matter to every for-profit company. They're the same four. Uh, the first thing is volume. So how much product technology services you commit to. The more, the better for us. Number two, timing of cash. So the faster you pay, that's a good thing for us. Number three, length of commitment. The longer you commit to our products, technology services, that's better for us. And number four, is the predictability or when you sign. And so as we're having this conversation, those are the four things that drive our business. Now, in that uh, oil and gas example, they immediately were like, fascinating, we need 30% off. Well, what do you do? Do you start playing ping pong with like, we can do 10? And like you get into this whole thing where you're just giving discounts away as charity to their bottom line. Or could you go back to the four and go, hey, listen, maybe we've got a path to get you pretty close. Commit to more volume, pay faster, commit longer. Let's mutually align around timing. So uh, we'll pay you in the form of a discount to help us predict our business. What happens is your customers start to negotiate their own deals. Trust is built to the goal line instead of eroded. You get something of value for every dollar you give away in the form of a discount. Oh, and your deals become more predictable if you play that last lever right. That's an example of transparency in a way that nobody's really been talking about. And I just think it's an incredible opportunity that has long dividends too, because as customers stay, buy more and renew, they remember the levers. As a matter of fact, I had one buyer that when he was trying to negotiate with me was just like, is it the F and levers again? I'm like, yeah, it's the F and levers. But uh, you know, they he hung up, <laughs> negotiated his own deal, called back, they were going to pay up front. They were going to commit to three years to get to the price he wanted to. And they're like, cool, that's awesome, right? There's opportunities everywhere in your sales cycle to impart transparency. It's not just an upfront messaging, but it's pricing, it's negotiating, it's presenting, it's your post-sale customer success, everything along the path. Transparency sells better than uh, perfection, but it also keeps, grows, and it leads better than perfection, which is the, the subject of my next book, uh, The Transparent Sales Leader. Interesting stuff. So I want to throw a spanner on the works, Todd, um, as I like to do every now and then. Cool. So in, in that example, which I like, um, I've been in a similar scenario, actually nowhere near as big a deal. But when uh, me and probably about five or six years ago, me and uh, my colleague were trying to sell into a national bank. And it was just us two sitting in front of a board of probably 10 C-suite execs. I was bricking it and not to add to that, but our proposal that we loaded on our laptop failed. Not only did that fail, their computer system failed. So we had no technology and I was just sweating away. Um, in the end, we did a similar thing, really. We were just up front. We said, look, the technology's failed us. Let's have a conversation around this. Um, they kind of laughed off and we got a deal done. Long story short. but Yeah, it was... you probably felt like you were at the same table instead of vendor versus buyer, did. right? And it like just made it a lot more comfortable after that initial. Yeah, so list. disarming right out of the gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But going back to your point, which which I like. So you're you're saying there's there's four aspects, and are you literally saying when you um 
if someone brings up the conversation of discount and you're talking business, do you literally say, look, there's there's four points that we need to think about here. Do you say this to them in terms of the volume, the timing of cash, the length of commitment, and the predictability? Is that is that something you say to the prospect? Well, yeah, we say it. I mean, I kind of um, look at negotiation a lot like running a marathon. Like running a marathon is an event, but you wouldn't show up that morning and go, hey, I heard there's a marathon going on. I want to run. Like that would be insane. You got to <laughs> lay that found. I mean, it works. And it worked yeah. in that oil and gas example. But my um, suggestion is always when you're first talking about price, make sure they understand what those like what it's based on. So you do your initial price proposal and you go, hey, here's your pricing. And there's a couple of core tenants to what this pricing is based on. Number one is your volume. You've earned a discount based on the volume commitment. But it's also based on the timing of cash, which is upfront annual net 30. And it's also based on a minimum one-year commitment to the products, technology, services, right? And then as you get deeper, you can impart that fourth one, which is, hey, there's value to us and our organization in being able to predict. If we can mutually align around when you think you'll get this done, we're willing to pay you in the form of a discount to hold to it, right? And so instead of it being the fake expiring discount that everybody's getting on all their retailer emails right now, it becomes a mutual alignment where the customer has skin in the game. They're helping you predict. And as a result, you don't end up with the end of quarter hockey sticks like you normally would. And you've got customers that are you know, getting deals done on their own timeline and you've paid them to hold to it. Like that just that's a win for everybody. I really like that pricing summary. That's certainly something I skip past if I'm sharing pricing on presentations or sales calls. It, yeah. puts, a bit of, it puts a bit of weight and a bit of value behind the pricing as well from what you've just shared there. Well, yeah. I mean, confidence is contagious, right? Like when somebody, when you're talking to somebody who's confident, it actually lights up that part of your brain a little bit and you become more confident. The mm. opposite is true too with fear, right? When you're talking to somebody who's anxious or fearful, you start like your brain starts to go, what's going on here, right? When, when you can deliver pricing and go, here's our price and here's what it's based on, that confidence becomes contagious. What I found as I've taught tons of people this is their, their negotiation conversations are changing instantly. Like they're not getting pushback from customers like they were before. And partially is that psychological element that the customers are like, well, all right, cool. That's what it's based on. Great. And like even with my business, the levers are the same. When I bought my last car, I used levers when I bought vinyl flooring for upstairs here. We, I mean, th this piece of just establish what those are. Every company that is for profit cares about how much you buy, how fast you pay, how long you commit and when you sign. Every company does. That's the four. They get it. You get it. It's easy to, you know, make a part of your conversations. Yep. And when the bullets start flying, your negotiation conversations will be delivered with so much more confidence. Awesome. So back to the spanner that I forgot to throw in the works. Um, so in your case, there was a 30% request for discount. But yeah. what if someone comes in with something ridiculous that's never going to work, Todd, if they say, look, I want half off. Yeah. Um, and then you just can't, you can't look at any of those four angles. What is the, the transparent approach to that? Do we just say no? Yeah, <laughs> there, there's two pieces. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you part one, which is when that happens. Um, well, actually, let me give you part two first. I have uh, recently um, come to the firm conclusion based on the behavioral science that we should always be setting price expectations as part of transparency upfront. Meaning if I'm selling a six-figure solution to a four-figure buyer, 
one of us is in that wrong discussion, right? And you want to know that now versus at the negotiating table, right? Like that's crazy. So for you to be able to, you know, embrace transparency, but part of it is saying, hey, listen, based on my understanding of your environment and your requirements, the investment is probably going to be between X and Y. If that's going to be trouble, like let's address that right now instead of wait until the end, right? So now you set an expectation based sure. on variables. If the variables change, the price is going to change, of course. But that that part two means that conversation that you're talking about should only happen if suddenly there's some executive in the company that's like, why don't we just go with them? They're cheap, right? Um, so that's, that's part two. Part one of that is, to your uh, point, yeah, we say no, but frame this way. That, hey, listen, I understand. Um, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to that 50% price point. However, here's the four things that drive our business. Happy to have a conversation to see how close we can get. But if 50% is the number you're looking for, unfortunately, we're going to have to part as friends. Right? Yeah. And, like, and, and embrace it that way. That, again, is confidence building. But hopefully, if you set the expectation up front the right way, you're not having that conversation at the goal line. Yeah. So, so set it early in conversations before you ever get to discussing product and details yeah. and, and their spec too much. So they already know what ground you're on. Exactly. So hopefully you don't get any nasty, nasty scares later on in the sales process. Well, exactly. And in, unless you are purely an early stage where you've got no customers and no footing to stand on that your pricing is what the market is paying for, um, you know, you should be able to stand pretty firmly by that. Again, confidence is contagious. But like some of the companies that I've been teaching are like multi-billion dollar companies. And they're like, what do we do when they come at us with a 75% discount request? And I'm like, you've got 400,000 customers paying that amount. Like, first of all, have confidence that your pricing is right. But then when you approach it that way, it just, it customers get it, they appreciate it. And yeah, if they want to go dink around with some crappy other solution, they're more than likely to come back to you because you handled that the right way. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Todd, been a very good conversation. Any final points to, to wrap up on before uh, before everyone tuning in starts putting transparency in the mix? Well, yeah. I mean, again, I think the bottom line here is transparency, as it turns out, sells better than pretending to be perfect, right? It sells better. It keeps better. It grows better. And it leads better. And as Arthur Dunn said in 1919, if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. And now due to the proliferation of reviews and feedback on every one of your solutions, every buyer can go research you right now and find out the truth, embrace it, control it, lead with it, be the vessel that delivers that transparency. And I'm telling you that you will quickly find that your win rates go up, your cycle lengths uh, speed up considerably, you qualify in better, you qualify out faster the deals you're going to lose anyway. And then the most fun part is you make it really hard on your competitors to message against you. So embrace it, try it, get comfortable with it, and you're going to see some magical results from it. Top man. Thanks very much, Todd. And with that, sir, please do tell us more about the book, the upcoming book, and where we can learn more about yourself and connect with you. Well, thank you. So uh, book number one was the transparency sale, and it really captures all of these uh, these concepts we've talked about a whole chapter on negotiating in there. The new book that I'm writing that's coming out in the spring is called The Transparent Sales Leader. And it's embracing all of these concepts, creating a structure for you as a sales leader. Like so many of us as sales leaders, we get promoted and we're like, 
all right, now what? And we're basically a dog chasing a car bumper down the street, not knowing where the car's going. It gives you the structure sitting on top of a bed of transparency and the behavioral science of intrinsic inspiration, how to motivate your teams. I'm hard not to find, but toddcaponi.com or follow or connect with me on LinkedIn. Let me know that you heard me here if you connect with me on LinkedIn and I share all kinds of nonsense in both places. Good man, as do we all. Um, we'll put all of those links <laughs> over on the show notes at businessgrowth.marketing. And with that, thanks once again, Todd. Really enjoyed the chat. This is a blast. Thanks for having me. No worries, man. And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, do hit that subscribe button. We interview business leaders each and every week to supply actionable marketing and sales tips to help you grow your revenue and grow your business. And with that, we should catch you on the next one. Are you tired of hunting for clients? You could be missing out on regular inbound opportunities all because your website isn't on the first page of Google. Perhaps you're already spending money on marketing, but your website is failing to convert your hard-earned visitors into a consistent flow of leads and sales. Want to learn more about WebChoice's unusual approach that brings idle clients straight to you? Book a free digital marketing assessment today at webchoiceuk.com. That's webchoiceuk.com.